What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And uh, my guest today is an author, an activist, a playwright, a novelist, and the director of a Foreign Policy in Focus, a project at the Institute for Policy Studies. This is arguably the first genuinely progressive think tank in Washington to tackle the substance of national security topics. The Institute has a storied history on the left that, you know, maybe maybe we'll touch on. But uh, I first interacted with this guy almost 14 years ago because he gave me, he probably doesn't even remember this, but he gave me my first writing opportunities as a contributing like blogger to foreign policy and focus, right? So doing progressive foreign policy blogging. Um, and this was before I went into the Pentagon, before I got my PhD. But crucially, this guy's got a new book out called Right Across the World, The Global Networking of the Far Right and the Left Response. It's a uh, swift, penetrating analysis of uh, the global far right and transnational neo-fascism. And then the thing that's unique, like some people have written about this already, the thing that's unique is to explicitly position what the left response ought to be and is, right? Uh, so the person I'm talking about is the one and only John Pfeffer. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. And, and it was a great pleasure to, to learn that I was responsible for ushering you into the, the world of punditry. I, I knew that, of course, we were publishing you. I didn't know it was the first, the first foray for you. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, these things, you know, big outcomes with small beginnings or whatever, like it was not significant for you guys, but it was significant for me. So I don't know. It's always got a special place uh, in my heart, that experience. But if we could, I want to get to the book, and that was kind of the impetus for bringing you on the show, but your biography is interesting. And one of the things that we do in these interview episodes where I, I bring on experts is to pick at what your background is or your biography. I'd say a large, maybe half of our audience is like Gen Z and millennials who are either interested in uh, foreign policy or the world of foreign affairs broadly. Uh, they benefit, and frankly, I benefit too, from learning about uh, how people sort of navigated the world of, I mean, not just punditry, but sort of uh, foreign affairs broadly, increasingly the world of like writing and publishing, because that's an important part of all of this. If we could just start at the very beginning, you know, like what's some bio data on you? Like where'd you grow up? What did your parents do? What'd you study in school? All that stuff. So I grew up in New Jersey, uh, northern New Jersey, just across from New York, across the George Washington Bridge. And it was a public high school, but a very good one, one where I actually could study Russian. Uh, which was unusual uh, at a public school in the United States. And my parents... This was were, during the Cold War, obviously. This was, the yeah, near the, the kind of the latter years of the Cold War. So um, I was uh, I graduated in high, from high school in 82. Okay. So, I mean, this was before Gorbachev, of course, but, uh, but it was still, it could be controversial to be, to, to be learning Russian at that point. Hmm. Um, my father, an academic uh, professor of psychology, my mother, a uh, teacher in the public school system, uh, both of whom I think were very 
supportive of well anything I did, but they were especially excited about my going on to graduate school and getting a degree, which I ultimately failed to do and probably disappointed them greatly for, for not getting <laughs> a degree. But, but nevertheless, they instilled in me a great respect for, for education and for learning. And when I went off to college, a uh, small college in Pennsylvania, Haverford College, um, I initially had no intention to continue my study of Russian, but the folks at Bryn Mawr, which was the sister institution of Haverford, had an excellent Russian department and a very welcoming one, uh, welcoming in the sense that on every Friday night, they had a vodka and pierogi <laughs> party. Oh, and that welcoming, I, yeah. <laughs> So I almost, you know, just backed my way into a, a Russian studies degree, in addition to the English degree that I took. Uh, but I took no politics courses. Um, hmm. I had no interest in foreign policy in the in the academic sense, though of course I was very involved in the activism of the era, which hmm. was at that time the anti-apartheid movement. Um, and working to prevent US military intervention in Central America. Those were the kind of two you know, uh, lodestones, if you will, for foreign policy activism at that time. Uh, when I graduated, um, which was 86, you know, I, I spoke Russian. I can't say I spoke it fluently, but I spoke it well enough. My Russian teacher, really encouraged me to join the CIA, <laughs> so I, you know, put my talents to, to good use. And I said, look, you know, I, I don't agree with the CIA's mission. And he said, well, you know, the most important thing is that we have good people in there. Hmm. And that, you know, is, is a perennial argument, um, and one I didn't actually support at that time. But uh, instead, I was able to get a job at the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker institution. Oh, yeah. And there was a natural kind of overlap there. Haverford was and is, uh, at least nominally, a, a Quaker institution of higher education. And AFSC then and still now, although in a lesser sense, uh, has been at the forefront of uh, all the major social movements in the United States and was very active on foreign policy questions as well. And I got a job working on Russian issues as you know, the lowest possible um, position, a administrative assistant, essentially a secretary, but with someone, Michael Simmons, a, a kind of long time civil rights activist who gave me the space to do work. And even in that position that employed my Russian language and my Russian uh, studies background. Was it of a sort of policy analysis variety or like an organizing on behalf of policy positions or policy issues or something else entirely? It was mostly on the analysis side. I mean, this was uh, 1987. Mm. And uh, so there was two years after Gorbachev had taken over in the Soviet Union. And I had been in the Soviet Union studying in 1985, uh, the spring uh, after he had taken over. So I had had a kind of bird's eye view of what was taking place in the Soviet Union at that time. And I judged it to be very significant. And, you know, obviously, you know, from hindsight, everyone knows it was significant. Yeah. But in 1987, there was still a great deal of doubt as to whether Gorbachev represented uh, an actual change in the Soviet Union or whether he was just the latest apparatchik to come along with promises of change, but no substance behind that. 
So in that year, 1987, I kind of devoted myself to chronicling the um, development of glasnost, of openness, and perestroika, the economic restructuring that was taking place in the country, mm-hmm. essentially to demonstrate that this was the real thing. Um, and uh, and then you know went on to you know to cover those issues a little bit more in depth later on. So how long were you at the what was it American Friends Services Committee? Mm-hmm. So in that particular position, I was there for exactly one year. Okay. Is, now, of course, one year, it seems like nothing. But, but when you're 22, 23 years old, it seems like an eternity yeah, <laughs> to be in one place and one job for a whole year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I chafed at being, you know, just an administrative assistant. I was interested in doing something more than that. And I, I got a uh, fellowship. Um, in Washington. Uh, it's known as the Herbert Scoville Fellowship in Arms Control. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, you know, early on in that fellowship, I was maybe the second or third um, class uh, in, in that fellowship. And, uh, and I came to Washington, you know, for the interview, for the position. And I had written an essay basically saying that I thought that arms control was a crock of shit. <laughs> that I thought that, you know, disarmament was was the most important thing. And arms control was actually a deterrent to disarmament. Arms control was just a, uh, a, a way of not even reducing nuclear weaponry. It was a way of establishing ceilings to which one could build up one's nuclear arsenal. And, uh, and I found myself in front of probably a dozen of the most important arms control people in Washington to defend my position, which uh, I did find daunting, <laughs> but apparently yeah. I did it well enough to, to win that fellowship. And, uh, and I went to work at Nuclear Times Magazine, which was at that time a kind of, um, it was really the only publication for the, the disarmament community. This is uh, a point that I feel like is lost to history for a lot of people now, especially like young people who uh, study nukes and with the implicit premise that, you know, basically nukes are bad, right? And the line that like, you know, a nuclear war can never be won and should never be fought. People internalize, like the younger generation especially will internalize these things as truths. But then there's this question of, A, the world as it is, kind of a wash in nuclear weapons and pointing in the wrong direction. Um, but B, like arms control, the, there's a there's such a right-wing tilt to Washington now that arms control itself is like very progressive and a bridge too far for most people in Washington, frankly. But there was a time in the like 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s, I suppose, like you're on this on this thread where the arms control was seen as like kind of a, a reactionary move that supported militarism in a way because it subverted or prevented disarmament and disarmament as like a, a paradigm had all of these, I don't know, policy ideas, policy options to like further along the process of, of nuclear disarmament. And the the advocacy for arms control became a way of like foreclosing the disarmament paradigm itself. And I think the way a lot of people think now, it's like, well, arms control, if you want disarmament, you have to go through the process of arms control. But there really was a time, and you're speaking to it very like frontally, there was a time when 
arms control was a way of almost delegitimizing disarmament. Is that, does that strike you as correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you might remember uh, what St. Augustine famously said. He said, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> um, and essentially, that's what arms control uh, advocates were saying uh, up until, you know, you, you can find them still today, I suppose. But give me disarmament, but not yet. And arms control was basically, you know, a, an effort to institutionalize uh, nuclear arsenals. I mean, deterrence was the kind of key component of, of an arms control perspective mm -hmm. that, you know, one effectively needed nuclear weapons uh, to counter the nuclear arsenals of other countries. To bring them down in any radical fashion would be to destabilize the entire kind of system of deterrence and prove far more dangerous than the, what was considered a, a relatively safe status quo. Um, and disarmament advocates, of course, challenged that and said, no, uh, we can reduce arsenals in a mutually you know, beneficial way, in a way that's not uh, dangerous. Um, but, you know, as you've said, things have changed. And, you know, when we, when we think of, for instance, the Iran nuclear deal as an arms control effort and the importance of supporting something like that, uh, yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, all the countries would be meeting their obligations under the non-proliferation treaty. That means all the nuclear powers had essentially agreed as part of the NPT to reduce their nuclear arsenals. They, of course, haven't done so uh, in any, well, in any substantial yeah, way. I mean, there have been some reductions. But, uh, and the countries outside the NPT, countries like Iran, would say, okay, well, we're, we're agreeing to this non-proliferation treaty under the uh, assumption that all the nuclear, all the members of the nuclear club, club are reducing their, their arsenals. Um, but that deal has largely <laughs> disappeared and we're left with things like the Iran nuclear deal, which uh, didn't require the United States to reduce any of its nuclear weapons. It simply required the United States to, well, eliminate sanctions against Iran in uh, exchange for Iran, you know, uh, basically giving up its its nuclear weapons uh, capability or its its uh, attempt in one way or another to, to create a nuclear weapons capability. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that becomes in, in this day and age, an absolutely essential kind of uh, kind of treaty to support against those who, you know, like Trump and, and everyone else in his, his political camp who had no interest whatsoever in, in that kind of arms control. So you're absolutely right that the, the debate in many ways has shifted since the, the 1980s. Yeah, it's important. I'm glad you brought this whole thing up, though, because I, I my ideas about this are very inchoate, but I feel like as a larger project, it's kind of important for the left to recover some of this disarmament history, because there were ideas in it that have been completely erased from like mainstream discourse and implicitly uh, put made taboo or whatever, stigmatized um, because they were associated with disarmament and the conversation has shifted so much that like we, we I don't know, A, we're not a very good opposition anymore, like we're like Republican light, but also B, there's, there actually were 
tractable ideas. There were periods in all the way into like the 60s where, you know, the Kennedy administration itself and, and Institute for Policy Studies was part of this was actively looking at different analysis and pathways and roadmaps for disarmament with the Soviets and having those conversations, you know, and it's like, that's so far gone now, you know? Um, anyways, the, uh, there's a related thread here, uh, arms control, Iran, North Korea. Um, I've always been very impressed by your breadth. You do many things, uh, which you know, I want to get into, uh, and I, I try to sort of operate in a similar way, uh, a little bit Renaissance man-y, but uh, one of the areas where we converged is on North Korea. Like, how do you how do you come to be a Korea watcher, right? Like, you've been to North Korea. Can you talk about all that? Sure. So, as you probably can uh, deduce from uh, my description of my early biography, I was pretty much a a person who focused on, well, the Soviet Union, and then later Eastern Europe. I lived in Poland in 1989 and traveled throughout the region, again, for the American Friends Service Committee in 1990, and continued to follow events in Russia and Eastern Europe throughout the 1990s. But during that time, when I was at AFSC, one of the staff people there, uh, Chung A. Yu, uh, who focused on Korea, kept urging me to, to, to look at Korea. And I kept saying, chung you know, <laughs> I've got a lot on my plate, you know, there's, there's so much going on in Eastern Europe. I, I really don't, I don't have really a lot of time. But she said, no, you really have to look at North Korea. I mean, this is key to understanding what's going on in the world today. This and, is like late 80s or? Uh, this, no, this would have been in the 90s. Okay. So this is, you know, from like 93 to 95, 96. Okay. And uh, meanwhile, I met my current wife uh, at the time, and, and she had studied in Beijing. She uh, spoke Chinese, and she was eager to get back to, to Asia. And uh, there was an opening uh, for AFSC's international affairs representatives in East Asia. We applied, uh, and she brought the Asia experience, and I brought the experience of being a an international affairs representative in Eastern Europe for AFSC. And together we kind of were a, a, a perfect couple, <laughs> you know, and they liked hiring couples for these jobs. Yes. So they chose us and we went over in 1998, uh, based in Tokyo. And the interesting thing was how ignorant I was. <laughs> I mean, I have to be right out front. I mean, I thought I had had a good education, you know, um, in high school and college. And I had a passing familiarity with Asian culture and history. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I started to learn Korean and I started to study the books of Korean history, history books about Japan and China, I realized that I knew nothing. I mean, I knew nothing. You know? <laughs> and, and it was such a humbling experience to, uh, to think that I was um, so well-rounded and so well-educated only to discover that I knew zero about, you know, what constituted half the world. <laughs> you know, this was an, an astonishing to me. So those three years we spent in Japan, which uh, where we focused our work on, on the two Koreas were a profound kind of educational experience for me. Um, and, and learning Korean or attempting to learn Korean, since I don't think I ever particularly <laughs> spoke it 
very well. But it, that in itself was important because it, it really opened a window onto a different way of, of approaching culture, approaching um, communication, et cetera. Uh, we were supposed to focus on North Korea and, and uh, AFSC was um, involved in North Korea for some time uh, prior to our uh, beginning these jobs and had established a relationship with three farms in North Korea. And we, they were providing inputs, agricultural inputs and expertise to these, these farms. Huh. And when the famine hit in, you know, the early 90s, so uh, about 93, 94, uh, up through 99, uh, AFSC kind of switched over to providing considerable amount of humanitarian aid and participating in the global efforts, both at a civil society level and at a governmental level to, you know, ensure that uh, not everyone in the country was going to die of, of famine. Our job, we were not agronomists, so our job was to identify other kind of, um, kinds of exchanges that uh, the U.S. in particular could sponsor with North Korea that could provide the country with the kind of knowledge necessary to, well, get out of its uh, predicament. And as a result of that, we did uh, medical exchange. Uh, we tried to do some exchanges on um on architecture and on energy. But North Korea was not an easy place to uh, work in and certainly not an easy place to work with. Yeah. And it, we ended up, um, I, I ended up focusing a lot of my work in South Korea. My, my partner ended up doing a lot of work in China and Taiwan. Um, and in South Korea, I worked on uh, security issues, but more in depth, I did a, a year long training on conflict resolution at the request of five different civil society organizations. And you know, I told them, look, I, I'm no expert on, on conflict resolution. Uh, are you sure you want me to be the one who is you know, setting up this program for you? And they said, absolutely. Uh, it's because you're not an expert that we trust you. <laughs> we know that you're not trying to, to sell us a particular kind of approach. We, we trust that you will be even handed and you'll learn alongside us. And I kind of like that. So that's, hmm. that's what I ended up doing for, for the better part of a year. Okay. So, uh, so you're in, in Japan under the auspices of AFSC. Uh, you're, you're facilitating people-to-people -people, uh, type exchanges, like Track 3 style exchanges with North Korea. What is it that what, – what's the jump to uh, Institute for Policy Studies? When does that happen? Or how do you go from Japan to IPS? Mm-hmm. So I'd been affiliated with this foreign policy and focus project for several years before we even went off to Japan. Mm. I had done some uh, briefings for them um, on NATO and on European issues, on, um, on Russia and the emerging kind of policies of, of the Yeltsin administration and US-Russian relations. So uh, when we got back from Tokyo, we, we relocated to Washington, which, by the way, was not my choice. Uh, if, I, if it had been me, I would never return to Washington. <laughs> my experience, my one experience there in 1988 had been enough. Um, I, I thought of Washington as being a very blinkered and ultimately conservative place, not necessarily conservative politically. Culturally, although, yeah. yeah. Yes, culturally. But my, my wife got a job um, doing North Korea work in 
in uh, there aren't too many places in the United States yeah. where you can do career work. So we relocated to Washington. And for, I'd say the first five years, I was working as a, a freelancer. Um, I did, I wrote articles for a variety of different publications and I continued to contribute to foreign policy and focus. In 2006, there was an opening. Uh, they needed a co-director. FPIF was um, a joint project of IPS and something called the Interhemispheric Resource Center, which was located out in New Mexico, which generally focused on border issues in Latin America. Uh, mm. But I, the IRC hired me as their co-director alongside Mira Woods, the IPS co-director. And uh, I had a great relationship uh, with folks at IPS, thought I had a good relationship with the folks at IRC. Um, that turned out to be <laughs> not such an easy marriage to, um, to uh, continue. Uh, the, the, the two IRC. institutional relationships, you mean? Exactly, yes. So the IRC basically collapsed after a year. And IPS very kindly brought me on uh, as an IPS person in 2007. And I've been there ever since. Hmm. Interesting. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what the Foreign Policy in Focus project does? Like the, a lot of it is a progressive slant. It doesn't seem to be openly partisan, but like certainly like a, pro a progressive sensibility in analyzing foreign policy. That's correct. We're definitely not partisan um, in the sense that we, we were started in the mid 90s as a response uh, to Clinton's foreign policy, Bill Clinton's foreign mm. policy. And, you know, Clinton had come into office promising uh, a new multilateralism, um, a kind of new relationship between the United States and the world, which was very promising. Um, but very quickly, Clinton kind of turned his back on, on that promise, yeah. in part because of, of events that took place outside of his control and outside the United States, such as, you know, what was going on in Somalia, the breakdown of the state there, the genocide in Rwanda, the breakdown of, uh, certainly the breakdown of Yugoslavia and the continued uh, wars of succession there. Yeah. So, uh, but we were very disappointed with, uh, with Clinton's approach and uh, not just on the kind of security side, but particularly on the economic side. Uh, Clinton, of course, was very supportive of uh, what has been called the Washington Consensus, yeah. it was neoliberalism. neoliberalism. And, uh, and so in 1996 or so, FPIF came into existence basically to articulate a different kind of progressive foreign policy one that was very different from what had emerged as the kind of Clintonian consensus within the Democratic Party. Um, and, uh, you know, by the time I became more active in FPIF, of course, politics had shifted. So, you know, the first book I did for FPIF was on uh, the Bush administration's foreign policy, the uh, George W. Bush administration's foreign policy. Uh, after 2001, after the attacks of 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, FPIF has across administrations kind of asserted a, a progressive foreign policy based on, you know, what we consider to be real multilateralism that doesn't put the United States either as number one or even as first among equals, but in a truly cooperative relationship with the rest of the world. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about 
your book, and I'm cognizant that we haven't even started talking about it yet now. The, this, this book, uh, the title, again, Right Across the World, The Global Networking of the Far Right and the Left Response. Um, this is an issue I've kind of become obsessed with the last few years, and, and I found that it's pretty hit and miss when it comes to how much progressives are actually concerned about this. The far right or the, the right wing phenomenon, I think you call it like the new right frequently in your book. Uh, global far right is a phenomenon people are studying. Um, Neo-fascism, right wing populism. There's like different synonyms that are like, they're not always the exact same thing, but like they're they're part of like a sort of overlapping common phenomenon. I thought your book did a great job of diagnosing what's going on here. Um, so, you know, for people who aren't familiar, can you sort of give the elevator pitch of the book and like outline what the arguments are that you uh, set out to demonstrate? Sure. So the book attempts to understand the roots of the popularity of the far right um, and how a group of nationalists who might otherwise not think about kind of international solidarity have essentially changed their tune over the last decade or so uh, in order to build power at a global level. Uh, the book looks at kind of three roots of uh, the far right's appeal. And it's true, I use the term new right because I wanted to understand this overlap between traditional conservatives and alt-right and an extreme right. Um, and you know, because we we often have this kind of terminological difficulty in understanding uh, the, the right wing and where to place it along the spectrum. Because, you know, of those three traditional kind of conservatives, alt-right and extreme right, there's considerable overlap in their positions, but there are some important uh, divergences as well. But in any case, uh, the roots of, of popularity for, for this new right and identify it as uh, essentially uh, a rejection of, of globalization and global elites, uh, a rejection of the political parties that have supported the globalization project, and a, reje a rejection of um, globalization's kind of cultural uh, manifestations. Uh, in other words, um, immigration or people on the move, as well as uh, often ideas, liberal ideas on the move, if you will, like you know, the, the promotion of, of Hollywood films. And then uh, I try to understand the three levels of cooperation among uh, the far right or new right actors, uh, governmental level, uh, the level of civil society organizations uh, on the right, and then the, um, the messaging uh, that takes place um, that is promoted by often individuals rather than institutions or, um, or governments per se. Uh, and then finally, I look at what the left response can and should be to what I consider to be a, an urgent issue, uh, an urgent challenge to to democracy, uh, to uh, rule of law, um, to you know uh, modern society, effectively. So, where did this book come from? Like, how did you decide? Taking on any book project is pretty. It's an intense commitment. You've hit a lot of different sort of topics and themes in your your writing. Like you're a broad guy who then cultivates specialties along the way or whatever. But what made you focus in on this? Like why'd you write the book? 
Well, clearly the, the election of Donald Trump was a, a motivating factor. Backdrop, yeah. <laughs> you know, to use, a, to use an analogy, a lot of people may think about climate change, but they're not really that concerned about it because it's happening to islands off in the Pacific or, you know, the shorelines of just distant countries. But when it happens to them, then suddenly climate change is a really important issue. So, you know, here in the United States, this is not just an issue of the national front in in France or Viktor Orban in Fidesz in Hungary. Um, This is a serious issue right here and now. And then, of course, uh, after Trump's election, we saw, you know, the election of Bolsonaro. Um, We saw uh, the election of Duterte, who you know kind of straddles categories, yeah. uh, political categories, and you know we saw the the kind of consolidation of power among existing uh, authoritarian slash right wing leaders like Orban. So I thought it was important to put the Trump's victory in context to understand how this could happen to us, and and you know it wasn't just a question of trying to figure out well what what's the kind of general idea uh, or epistemic, you know, environment in which uh, Trump is operating. I wanted to look at, you know, what are the the concrete alliances that are being made uh, at a governmental level, at a party level, at a civil society. And to do that, I basically started calling people uh, in countries all around the world to get their perspective on what was happening in their country, to understand uh, those very specific contexts and to see where basically the lines started to converge. And that was the origin of this book. How much of it were you writing during the pandemic? It, it's clear that the pandemic had already started once before the book was finished, because you, you sort of address how, you know, the global far right basically doesn't have an answer to this, this kind of existential problem. Um, but mm-hmm. like you had, had you started writing this pre-pandemic or were you all in on the pandemic? Like, wh- what was the writing timeline? Sure. So I did the, the interviews in the spring and summer of 2019, and I produced a report uh, that we published at IPS in December of 2019. Uh, so then, of course, the pandemic hits in March. Uh, I think I had a book contract um, before the pandemic hit, but there wasn't a requirement to submit a manuscript until I think the following January. So I had some time to, to kind of um, to sit back and, and see uh, how the pandemic was altering the political environment. Um, and in fact, did a different book <laughs> that focused exclusively on the pandemic that we published before this one uh, came out that September. Uh, through Seven Stories Press, it, a component of which looked at kind of the pandemic's impact on authoritarian politics and right-wing politics. Uh, but then I kind of uh, adapted some of that material and and uh, and really changed this book as a result. Hmm. Um, on the substance of the argument, or the, the substance of the book, the uh, Ber- Bernie Sanders and uh, Giannis Varoufakis was calling this global far-right thing like the nationalist international. And you, at some point you mentioned that phrase in your book, uh, which kind of captures the paradox or like maybe that was why people didn't take this too seriously you know the the global far-right problem because the notion of like inter international solidarity among people who you know their ideas and identities are are sort of local and exclusionary 
there it seems like they would be incongruous like it's it's not possible to have a nationalist international would be like the the sort of conventional wisdom um but then this is a growing problem that they focus on right bernie and uh, Giannis. but then also this is like the crux of the book can you say a little bit about the cleavages within the new right and how is it that like that they manage this move of like bridging their own differences Mm-hmm. Well, first, I, I'd say that, you know, the the message, the anti-globalist message, the hyper-nationalist mm. message is extraordinarily important for building a constituency within a country. Um, it's not particularly useful beyond one's borders, but it's extremely effective for gaining political power, um, sometimes beginning at a regional level and then moving on to uh, acquiring national power. So, that message is extremely important, regardless of what you know the strategies and tactics might be for a foreign policy or for international, um, you know, alliance building. But you know, it became useful, I think, for the far right to to think about international connections. Obviously, that was the case, you know, in a in a in a space like the European Union, where, you know, you already have a kind of uh, an imperative to think about uh, what's beyond your borders, because you are operating within a pan-European space. So the far right in Europe is already ahead of us in some sense in in thinking transnationally. Um, And here you have, you know, the, the paradox writ small, because, you know, many of the far right movements in, in Europe, if not all of them, were Eurosceptical. In other words, they they were as hostile towards Brussels as they were towards globalists in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so Brussels kind of stands in for the IMF or the World Bank um, in in their kind of worldview, and yet they're running for office, you know, in the European Parliament. You know, so the far right, despite its Euroscepticism, is participating in European trans-European politics. And it's one thing if you have like, you know, four members of the European Parliament that represent the far right, you know, among all the hundreds of representatives, you can continue to maintain your Eurosceptical position. And, you know, Nigel Farage was was famous for for doing that, for basically, you know, he he was a a representative uh, at the European Parliament for years and he did nothing. You know, he barely showed up when he showed up, he kind of. Uh, fly his Union Jack flag and thumb his nose at everybody. <laughs> well, that's fine when you're just you know a very small minority. But the far right started to win more seats in the European Parliament, and suddenly they realized, aha, uh-huh, you know, okay, we might be Eurosceptical, we might be skeptical about this project, but suddenly we have the opportunity to have an influence over this project. So there was a subtle change, perhaps not so subtle when you look back at it, but away from a kind of rejectionist position to a, aha, let's work within the system and change the system position. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, of course, gets us to your, the second part of your question, which is what are the cleavages within the far right um, and the challenges of a, of a nationalist international, if you will. Yeah. And uh, again, let's start with Europe. Uh, we saw that very recently when the far right's European parliamentary delegation, um, the various parties that participate in it, gathered together, I think they, they met in Warsaw, to work out a kind of common agenda. 
for their activity at the European Parliament. And they couldn't do it. I mean, beyond some, uh, some vague you know, <laughs> consensual positions. And they couldn't do it because there were some significant disagreements that they had. Uh, and perhaps the most important one was their position on Russia with the Poles and some others saying, there's absolutely no way we are going to support anything connected to Vladimir Putin in Russia. Simply not going to happen. And the Poles are kind of legendary for their anti-Russian attitudes. Whereas the Hungarians, who, of course, up until Viktor Orban became prime minister again in 2010, were also legendary for their anti-Soviet and anti-Russian perspectives, have under Orban experienced a sea change. And Orban himself was basically embraced by uh, uh, Putin and Putin's uh, illiberal uh, politics. So this is a, a major kind of schism that, that runs right through the European um, far right. But there are, are innumerable other issues that make a nationalist international challenging. So for instance, you look at um, LGBT questions. Uh, in Europe in particular, there are a number of leaders who come from the LGBT community and are well represented on the far right. Whereas hmm. in other parties, they're explicitly homophobic, um, and have taken you know uh, have taken very conservative quote unquote pro family positions. And you look at what Orban has done in Hungary; he's basically uh, rewritten the constitution to say that in Hungary, it's you know a family has to be between a, a man and a woman as as mother and father in the constitution. Um, so that's a that's a pretty significant cleavage. Um, there are other cleavages. I mean, obviously, around questions of um, uh, you know vaccines, around QAnon and conspiracy theories um, on immigration. I mean, in general, the far right is is unified uh, in their dislike of immigration, but not all the far right supports remigration. In other words, kicking out your existing immigrants. That's something that the, for instance, the alternative for Deutschland supports in Germany. Uh, that's a bridge too far for, for a number of the, of the far or new right political uh, groups. Hmm. So there's like worry and then also hope, I guess, <laughs> because there, this is, there, it's such an unnatural formation, but out of almost strategic interest, there are convergences around um, shared narratives, but those shared narratives are kind of thin because, because there's just so much that they can't agree on. Um, okay. So, you know, you rightly point out that the right's kind of militarized, racialized worldview has no answers to the existential threats that face the world today, like, you know, climate change and pandemics and um, arguably nukes too. You know, and I agree that this you know, reality of a mismatch between threats and solutions, it's its an advantage for the left or an opportunity. I think you couch it as an opportunity for the left in the book, but it's kind of like demographics being an intrinsic advantage of the left too, right? Like the Democratic Party would be like, well, you know, demographics are on our side, right? Like there's, you know, the arc of history kind of, of argument, uh, which is to say like, it's kind of a theoretical advantage, uh, or like an abs in the abstract, there's a there's a potential advantage here in the fact that like the way the right thinks about security doesn't actually address security as in like existential threats, you know. Um, 
And so like there's a gap to be exploited. I guess the question is like based on the the research and talking to, you know, progressives who are mobilizing for this, like how do we exploit that that gap or that possibility, right? Like we have this reality advantage. Reality is on our side. So but that but we have to do something to sort of capitalize on that. Is like do you have thoughts on that? Sure. Well, first I'd say that, you know, uh, I think the left has an opportunity to address these existential questions or threats. Mm. But these are these are threats that I consider to be existential. I mean, the they right are, group, right? Like, <laughs> this is, well, yeah. if you're saying. Yeah, I, I mean, there is, a, there is an agreement among a lot of people that this is an existential crisis, yeah. you know, climate change and, and the pandemic. But th- for the far right, they have an entirely different set of existential threats that they have... Uh, been able to motivate their constituencies to, to rally around. I mean, so for uh, for white nationalists, it's the the threat that white people will no longer have a dominant place in society. The great for replacement kind of people. yeah. Uh, for evangelical Christians, it's you know the, the breakdown of the traditional family. I mean, for them, that's a very serious existential crisis, hmm. and and it's extremely motivating. You know, and th- I'm sure there's someone on on the other side of of uh, the political spectrum who's saying, you know, the left has no answer to this. <laughs> They're motivating, you know, our constituency. We have this great opportunity, you know, and 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 they're right, you know. So we have to acknowledge that first of all, and then. In terms of, uh, you know, addressing climate change, pandemics, economic inequality, and so forth. Um, Yes, uh, this is an opportunity. But again, you know, back in 1999, the left had identified economic inequality and the gap between, say, uh, global institutions and global democratic governance as this great opportunity for mobilization. And in fact, it was. And so the left had, you know, motivated in the United States to, to march in Seattle against free trade agreements. And, and there, there were similar movements around the world. But, you know, fast forward 20 years. Didn't work out. Who is <laughs> the advantage of those, of those issues? It's not the left, for the most part. It's the far right, which has you know, stolen the thunder, if you will, from the left on, on this anti-globalization um, agenda. So, uh, so what can the left do now? Okay, acknowledging that, number one, uh, the far right has its own existential crises that it's responding to and which prove very motivating for voters, uh, their voters, to come to the polls. And number two, that the left has identified you know, existential problems in the past and failed to kind of translate that into um, significant policy transformation. What can we do now, acknowledging that history? Well, I mean, I do think that the, the terms have changed in, in part because for two reasons. One, because the pandemic has, I think, uh, changed the terms of engagement when it comes to uh, resources and the amount of resources that are made available for addressing an issue. Uh, countries have mobilized enormous packages for recovery from, from the pandemic. And the populations have begun to realize that hey, that argument that was used before, we don't have enough money to address climate change, we don't have enough money to protect ourselves from a potential pandemic, that that argument no longer flies after the mobilization of of these resources. Um, The second is that climate change is, as I said, no longer 
an abstraction. Uh, it is an existential, it's not a, a philosophical problem, which people are kind of debating and saying, well, you know, it's better to start now, but, you know, we could, as long as we kind of get around to this issue by 2050, we'll be okay. Now, that's no longer the case. I mean, people, I forget the percentage, it was a New York Times article, said, you know, like something like 50, 60% of people around the world have been touched by climate change one way or another, mm-hmm. adversely. So I'm not talking about positive signs of, of uh, climate change. Um, so those two things, I think, have changed the political terms and that the far right has not caught up to that. What is the far right doing? The far right is uh, complaining about vaccine mandates. It's complaining about government intrusion in their lives. It's complaining often about the recovery packages and the size of them. Uh, It continues to be more or less denialist about climate change, although there are some eco-fascists and there are some kind of uh, far-right people who propose, you know, some uh, half-assed response to climate change, like planting a million trees or whatever. Um, And that the insufficiency of the far-right's response to what currently is challenging us, not the kind of existential problems as posited a decade ago, but what currently we face, that's the opportunity that progressives can can seize upon. Uh, But they have to seize upon it in more than just, say, uh, a campaign program. Like, you know, we're going to talk about this, we're going to develop a couple of policies, and that should bring voters out to the polls and get us elected. Well, that's probably not going to do the trick. I think what the left has to do is say, look, you know, we, we, we are screwed. I mean, I think a lot of people in the world understand the severity of the crises that we face, and we have to come up with a response that is commensurate with the urgency of the task. It has to be big, it has to be bold, and it has to be transformative. You know, the, the comfortable middle is not going to come up with a response like that. Um, Now, I'm not saying that the left is necessarily going to ride to power uh, with that agenda and be able to implement it, but by asserting something of that nature, I do think that we can have a profound impact on current policy debate. I think you would agree with this, but let me know if you you don't or you do or whatever. But it seems to me, to the extent that neo-fascism, or in whatever its variations, is a response to neoliberal globalization. You identified some of that response or the reaction against it as being at a cultural level, but like economic dislocation, like the precaritization of of work and the extreme concentrations of wealth that co-constitute that, like it's the it's basically extreme inequality that just promises to keep getting worse that is upstream of the forces of fascism. So if you're going to fight fascism uh, in so many words, the root cause has to be realizing some form of economic democracy. And like when you look at the WTO protests in 99, when you look at the left's agenda, historically, for the most part, like you could argue that the new social movements don't foreground economics necessarily, but like, it just seems to me that like, there is no ultimate remedy to this far right as a, a threat or a rising problem unless you can address economic equality. Does that does that strike you as correct in terms of like matching solution to problem or am I missing something? 
No, I think that's absolutely correct, but with one important caveat. And that is that kind of addressing of uh, economic inequality as a response to the far right will work as long as the far right hasn't taken up that issue as well. I mean, in a serious way. Mm, In other words, you know, if Josh Hawley became economic democracy guy, we have a problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the case in Poland, for instance, where the Law and Justice Party actually has pushed through uh, an economic program that, well, I mean, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it does uh, go some way toward um, evening out the, the substantial economic inequalities in the country, especially between city and countryside, hmm. uh, between generations. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they've done so in such a way that uh, they've essentially um, ensured a governing mandate for the party for the foreseeable future, and that there is really no significant political opposition. Contrast that with Bolsonaro in Brazil, where I mean, Bolsonaro and decent, you know, uh, distribution of money at the beginning of the of COVID, um, and that you know boosted his popularity prematurely, like a, a hit of heroin. Free but free. you know, yeah, yeah. at this point, you know, there's no more money to give out, and and his his popularity has plummeted, and people realize that you know the extreme inequality in Brazil has begun to reappear. And, you know. It, this was something that had been the, the kind of cornerstone of, of Lula and his successors was to, to, to build on the bolsa, the, the you know, providing a, a, a kind of um, economic stimulus to the poorest families to bring them up from, uh, from extreme poverty. Mm. All of which is to say that, yes, uh, I mean, this, this is absolutely critical. It's an absolutely critical um, uh, element for a progressive agenda. Uh, and we better push it through before the far right uh, comes to its senses, so to speak, and adopts a program much like law and justice did in Poland. One can imagine that there is some successor to to Trump out there who will uh, put forward something similar. I mean, yeah. you look at Ted Cruz's economic uh, programs. Some of them come very close to to promoting an economic democracy approach. Um, for you know, purely obviously. cynical reasons, but nevertheless, exactly. yeah, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> just to be so clear, happening here in the United States. Yeah. So the great mistake then is that the Democratic Party or progressives in name your country is to let right wingers get to our left flank, basically, like they that we we fail to champion the issues that make us left and that exposes us to people who respond to those needs then can be captured by the right. That's correct. Although, you know, there is a fear I have that the, what we're talking about right here is all, all takes place within a traditional um, political playing field or on a political playing field in which uh, essentially you're talking about a, a competition between parties over the distribution of resources, federal mm-hmm. resources, uh, and that it is the job of a politician to basically bring home the bacon, uh, to make sure that the people in their constituency uh, have benefited somehow from you know, the politicking of, of that representative. Yeah. That's your kind of traditional playbook for politics, at least here in the United States. But 
in the last four years, we've seen an, an entirely different playbook emerge in which it seems as though the Republicans have abandoned all notions of, of this kind of bring home the bacon approach uh, and instead have a, adopted an entirely symbolic set of uh, programs that, have, that are in, untethered from reality whether we're talking about their focus on critical race theory or about obviously a stolen election or any other Fucking kind communism, of communism. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then the, then you face with this, this dilemma as a, as you know, in this case, the democratic party, um, do we consider to continue to kind of push our traditional approach and which they have done through, you know, the stimulus packages through build back better through the infrastructure bill, um, yeah. you know, deliver the bacon. We got to make sure that, you know, especially the poorest, but also, you know, uh, lower middle-class working poor that they see the benefits that we are bringing to them um, or, or, and, or do we address uh, the Republicans at the symbolic level. Um, and that's, that's, that's a, a tough question. I mean, I don't think it's entirely clear whether the Republicans' political strategy of simply focusing on symbolism will be successful, but if they win in the midterms and if they obviously win in 2024, then that will be a powerful signal that politics as we know it has changed dramatically here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I take your point. Like reducing inequality, you know, addresses it addresses you know root causes in a in a crucial way, or like ultimately that has to be the path. Uh, but it operates a on like quite a long time scale, so like it doesn't necessarily fix the problems now. But also, it requires normal politics, and we're living in an era that seems like it's trending more and more toward like not normal politics. Um, so when you, we, you have a couple chapters at the end of the book where you talk about the left response to this, you know, global far right problematic. Can you sort of talk about what you uh, wrote there? Prescriptions, but all, it was, you, you speak to it, but hybrid of like prescriptions and observations about what the left is doing in response. Yeah, so the, the last couple of chapters uh, kind of provide an overview of what's already kind of taking place in terms of transnational organizing uh, mm -hmm. on the left, both at a, on an issue basis, but also in terms of what venue the, the action is taking place, you know, say in multilateral organizations or at a regional level or at a local level. Um, and there's a lot. I mean, there, you know, if, if you... If you kind of put on your blinders and stopped looking at Twitter and paid no attention to what, you know, the the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world or, you know, the Marine Le Pens of the world are saying, um, you could be persuaded that the left is doing very well. Um, okay, it doesn't really control politics in a lot of countries, but at a local level or at the organizing that takes place, you know, in in, in civil society, the left seems to be doing quite well. Um, but in any case, that, that there is quite a lot of action activity, and, and I, I kind of try to chronicle it. Uh, but then, you know, I, I try to understand well what, what are the what's really needed here. And I talked a little bit already about the need to be bold and uh, to come up with something that meets the urgency of the moment. And uh, so I finished the book basically talking about a global green new deal, and. 
it, obviously taking into account the Green New Deal or New Deal in particular is rhetoric that doesn't really appeal to people outside the United States. So, yeah. uh, you know, in the work that I'm doing at IPS right now, we talk about it as a as a global just transition. Um, but it's 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 essentially kind of looking at what we have to do as a as a you know, international community to do at least two things at once. One dramatically reduce carbon emissions, and number two, transition to very quickly uh, a clean energy um, infrastructure for our economies. Now, what the economy will look like as a result of those two things, well, that you know, that's controversial, of course. You know, yeah. Some would still argue that you can do that within the framework of capitalism. Others would argue that you need a completely different kind of economic organization. Uh, and within that discussion, you know, there are a number of other issues related to the question of economic growth, the nature of uh, culture and, and the, the organization of, of cities, et cetera, et cetera. So there are lots of questions here, but I do think that this is where you know, the left has to ultimately converge um, in coming up with uh, a, a broad kind of umbrella understanding of what transformation has to take place that can then be adapted according to the you know, local conditions in any given place. So a green path to economic democracy implemented by transnational organization, transnational progressive movement. Well, certainly facilitated by that. Facil um, yeah. you know, I mean, we, we obviously don't have a, a, at, a, at a global level anything that resembles the European Union it's no surprise that the European Union, in some sense, is ahead of all of us in putting together its uh, Green Deal, mm -hmm. its European Green Deal. Um, with all of its flaws, it's still much better than what is on the books and pretty much anywhere else in the world. Um, and the fact that it, it has a mechanism by which the poorer countries within Europe can catch up to the, the more powerful countries um, with additional funding is I think an important model that can be used for the rest of the world. Um, but that's the, that's what we have to be looking at. You know, we have to be looking at these, these examples that are being fleshed out at both a national level in some countries, Costa Rica, Uruguay, uh, but more importantly at a regional level, like in Europe. Yeah. What you're saying is right. And like, I mean, clearly if I'm, if I'm thinking that economic equality is the solution, I'm in this headspace too. I kind of worry that, and uh, there's not like an answer to this, I don't think, maybe you have one, but like, I worry that these, these solutions are, they're too orthogonal to the immediacy of the far rightists themselves, like the nationalist international and this, like the communist witch hunts, the anti-China witch hunts. You know, everyone's a Chinese communist if you don't agree with us kind of thing. That's happening so now. And mm -hmm. our solutions, there's a, there's a period of time where we need to enact these solutions. But in the interregnum or in the interim, um, they're pressing this like national emergency button. Um, and it's, it's hard to respond to that. You know, we have, we have the cure but there's these symptoms that might cause us to have to amputate the leg anyway. I don't know. Right. <laughs> well, I think the, the, the problem is that, you know, often what we, what we're talking about is a, is a mismatched um, 
contest in which they bring, you know, the, the howitzer of emotion and, you know, uh, and, and heated invective. Mm -hmm. And we bring, you know, a couple of binders of paper (laughs) with our our options. And so, and that's why in the, in the book, I do address this question of, of a left populism. In other words, recognizing that, you know, dispassionate, you know, scientific uh, policy recommendations are not not necessarily going to win the day, at least at the polls, that the left really has to motivate people in other ways. And, uh, and the kind of traditional way of doing that is to basically uh, complain about the fat cats to, to, you know, position the 99% against the 1%. Yeah. And, you know, to blame the 1% for everything, even if the 1% isn't to blame for everything. I mean, you know, sure, the 1% has a bigger carbon footprint, but, you know, let's face it, we're all responsible for, for carbon emissions yeah, yeah. going back 150 years. Um, but for, for political reasons, it's useful to kind of blame the 1% in order to get the 99% on our side and voting for our uh, proposals. How we do that? Well, I mean, there are, I think, responsible ways to do that and irresponsible ways to do that. But nevertheless, I do think some element of that left populism uh, needs to be part of this this picture. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's more to say about that, but that is uh, a more hopeful answer than I thought you would give. So that's good. What? Taking a break, pausing, pivoting from the book, uh, I wanted to talk about your writing in a, in a more meta sense. You write all kinds of shit. Novels, you've written at least one play, probably more than one. I'm not familiar with your like full canon necessarily, but I know you've done at least one. Can you talk about your experience writing right. not the novels and the plays? And like, that's a very different space from the kind of, you know, analytical and advocacy writing that we tend to do, especially people who listen to this show. Um, mm-hmm. But there's always been this crossover interest. And I've had a couple guests on who are sort of foreign policy wonks, but then they've dabbled in uh, sci-fi writing and writing other fiction. And like, you're one of these guys too, but you've done it a lot more than other people. Um, so like, why do you why do you do it, A? And do you find that that kind of writing is any different from doing this sort of nonfiction writing, this analytical writing that you're doing about like the far right? Well, you know, if, if things had worked out differently, we would be having an entirely different conversation, which you'd be asking me. So you, John, have been writing novels and plays. Why are you now dabbling in foreign policy? <laughs> Flip it, yeah. Because that, that really would have been, you know, the trajectory I, I had intended back in, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s. My... <laughs> My desire was to write novels and plays, and but to you know to to make a living, I was basically you know writing on foreign policy. Now, of course, mm-hmm. I was interested in foreign policy, and I love the way foreign policy offered a, an opportunity to travel to other places in the world, and, and that was very much something I wanted to do. But you know, I, I published my first novel in '97. And, uh, and, you know, it, it, I published it under a pseudonym. It came out from Scribner. It was a hardback. It was very prestigious publisher. And it it was called Foamers. Foamers. And, uh, a foamer is, it's a, a slang expression used by Amtrak personnel 
to describe people who are obsessed with trains because they get on, <laughs> on the train and they start foaming at the mouth. So, oh. um, so it was a book about, you know, train fanatics and, uh, and, you know, it was a, a mystery, a thriller. It was a, a fun book, but in any case, I thought that would have been the uh, beginning of a, you know, of, of a career as a novelist. Um, and it should have been, <laughs> but, uh, but it wasn't. Um, and I, you know, I won't go into the details of what happened to, to derail my career, to use the train metaphor. Um, but, uh, but, you know, after that, I didn't publish fiction, you know, from 97 until pr basically 20 years later. Um, and, uh, and one of the reasons that I w started doing plays was in some sense, because I felt thwarted in, in publishing novels. And this was an opportunity to kind of have an immediate relationship with an audience. Uh, I was, you know, basically perform writing and performing one man shows. And so I did about uh, 10 of them between uh, uh, 2008 and today. Um, you did 10 one man shows. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, covering lots of different, Topics. I did one on North Korea. I did one on traveling around Asia in search of the perfect meal. I did one on my mother. I did one on my father. I mean, diverse, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the most recent one was uh, uh, something I took to the Edinburgh Fringe, which was about um, a kind of an imaginary future in which the only determinant of social success is one's sense of humor and the main character. <laughs> is someone born without any sense of humor whatsoever. So it's kind of an intriguing one-man show. But uh, I was given an opportunity in 2016, I actually uh, was writing a piece. It was supposed to be on US-Russian relations. And my editor, uh, Tom Engelhardt of Tom Dispatch said, you know, John, I want you to imagine what, what's coming in US-Russian relations. This was 2015. Um, what, what do you think, you know, what, what's going to be the future? And I said, eh, you know, I could write something banal, <laughs> you know, about what, what will happen between yeah. the United States and Russia. But as I started thinking about it, I started realizing that the, it was the wrong question, because if we looked at the future, we might not even have a United States or a Russia, and that these kind of unitary states and their relationship, uh, that might be a, a passing phenomenon. Um, we've certainly seen the, the uh, disintegration of unitary states like the Soviet Union or Yugoslavia. What would happen if, in fact, this became the, the dominant trend in international relations? So I wrote a piece by a, you know, essentially a, a Europeanist uh, looking back from the year 2050 at the year 2020 and what was kind of the, the beginning of the end of the nation state. Um, and that became the, you know, a pretty popular essay. And, uh, and then, you know, Tom asked me, well, you know, would you, this was very popular, would you, would you be interested in kind of expanding it into a book? And I said, you know, Tom, I basically put everything I can imagine into this essay. I, I, can't, I can't think about what a book would look like unless, unless I were to take it in an entirely different direction. 
and turn it into a novel in which the main character, this fellow looking back from 2050, is not only reflecting on the disintegration of the international community, but on the disintegration of his family and how the two go in parallel over the 30 years hmm. between 2020 and 2050. So that became kind of the first novel in what, what is now the Splinterlands trilogy in which I look at the, this issue from the perspective of this man in the first book, uh, his ex-wife in the second book, and their daughter in the third book. Damn, dude, you're the range and the <laughs> the titillatingness of like, I have to read more of all this stuff. I was only aware of one of your plays. I didn't realize you had this Scribner's book from the 90s. I was aware of the Splinterlands trilogy, uh, but that was kind of the extent of it. This is it's very inspirational. Um, can you talk a, a, at a mechanical level or a logistical level, like how do you produce so much stuff? What What is your writing process, your writing routine? Could you sort of walk me through a day in the life when you've got a writing project going and do you only do one project at a time or how does this work? Well, you know, there's always uh, a deadline and, you know, I mean, yeah. deadlines are the best way of, you know, ensuring that you produce stuff. Otherwise, if there's no one breathing down your neck, even if you're the one who's breathing down your own neck, <laughs> you're yeah. not going to get stuff done. So, you know, I've, I've done a weekly column for Foreign Policy and Focus basically since 2007. So 13 more or less years of a weekly column every Monday. And so uh, it comes out every Wednesday. But um, so every Monday morning, I wake up and I'm like, what am I going to write about, mm -hmm. you know, this week? And I have basically two days to, to get get my act together. Um, I've always had uh, a monthly column, usually for a Korean newspaper. Um, and then, you know, Tom of Tom Dispatch has gotten me to write somewhere between four and eight pieces for him a year, plus assorted op-eds and stuff. So that's kind of the, that's the, the nonfiction work. And, and all of it is, is deadline based. And the, the books basically come out of those assignments one way or another. You know, I did a book on Islamophobia that came out of a piece I did for Tom on the uh, Islamophobic crusades in this country. You know, a book about Korea, you know, a, a book about the pandemic. So they come out of these. When it comes to fiction, you know, the, the plays for the last 12 years, I would write during my vacation, uh, which was usually two weeks at the end of August, and then revise uh, at the next vacation, which would be uh, the Christmas, you know, New Year's holiday. So every year I would have one play coming out of, out of that process. Wait, so you seem to be then, writing a, a, a draft basically in a couple of weeks? That's correct. Wow. <laughs> And then the novels for a long time, I was doing uh, just three pages a day. First thing in the morning before I do anything else. And if you do three pages a day, you got a novel. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, got a novel yeah, yeah. at the end of six months, um, as long as you're disciplined about it. I haven't been as disciplined about that in the last six or seven years, but um, just because of the demands of the plays and, and the nonfiction. But um, but more recently, I've been I've been turning back to that. So, um, but you know, it's it's basically it's like with anything. You know, if you do it enough times, then it becomes just so much easier. If you're writing a weekly column, you know, 
it, it just has to become easier or you're going to go crazy and you're going to stop. Um, you develop a certain facility. Now, when it comes to nonfiction, that's fine, you know, because you're following certain models and you're going to play with those models and templates, but you, you are not going to go completely wild on them. Mm -hmm. With fiction, you often are going to go off on a completely different trajectory. You're going to break models. You're going to do something completely different. And that requires a somewhat different mindset. It's, so it's, it's not, you can't easily say, well, I've, I've written one novel. I've written two novels. The third one's just going to be easier. I mean, yeah, if you're doing, you know, Detective Jack Grandy, you know, and you do 26. Formulaic, yeah. Yeah. I mean, then it's, then sure, you can do that. But if you're doing really a, a, a profoundly different kind of novel each time, then each one is going to, to require heavy lifting. It's so, I can't say that that, that becomes easier necessarily. Um, but it does require carving out the space and also, you know, just giving yourself um, uh, the, the time that's necessary to put yourself in an entirely different environment, a conceptual environment to write something of that nature. Yeah, my writing process is similar, especially structure, how I structure my time. Where do your fictional ideas come from? Like you say, for the nonfiction stuff, it, it flows out of FPIF or Tom Dispatch, like the op-ed type stuff. But what about fiction? I mean, like this, the, the Fomers thing, the these like counterfactual imaginary futures, the play, the, the sci-fi with no humor thing. Like those are all very different things, you know, like where did the ideas come from? Is it idiosyncratic or you sit down? It's not like I sit there and think, what am I going <laughs> to, what kind of novel am I going to write now? It's more like... Um, it's a what if that hits me at some point, you know, what if, um, you know, sex and money were not the dominant kind of uh, features in a society, but a sense of humor was. Um, what, what, where could I take that, you know? Okay. Uh, sometimes it's, a, it's an honest mistake. I mean, I was on... Um, I was on a uh, Amtrak train going across country and I thought I heard two guys talking about um, an, a, a tape of a train accident. Um, and I, I, don't, I, I probably misheard them, but I started thinking, well, if there was a tape of a train accident, then they must have known that the train accident took place. Uh, they must have known beforehand that the train accident was going to take place so that they could tape it. So did they then cause the train accident in order to tape it? And that led to, you know, a, a, a number of thoughts <laughs> along those mm. lines. Or the, a book on Korea um, that I, I finished recently. Um, and this, this was a rumor. Uh, and I, I don't know if, obviously, if it's true or not. But as you're probably well aware, there were thousands of, of agents from South Korea who infiltrated North Korean society in the 70s, mm -hmm. 60s, and 70s, as there were thousands of North Korean agents who infiltrated South Korean society. Um, but uh, according to the rumor, if, um, if you were a South Korean agent who infiltrated the North and you were successful, you were killed up there and you came back and you debriefed your handler uh, and, uh, and they said, you know, hey, that was great information. Thank you very much they'd send you back on a second assignment under a different identity 
um, somewhere else in the country because you had obviously demonstrated that you were very good at impersonating a North Korean. Sure. And then you, if you survived that, you came back a second time and you debriefed your handler and they said, hey, that's great information. We're going to send you back a third time. And then you go back a third time and somewhere else in the country, you gather more information. You finally get out this third time. You come back to South Korea, you debrief your handler, and then they shoot you. And they shoot you because they assume that if anybody was so successful three times going to North Korea, that they must have turned you into a double agent. <laughs> so I thought, that's kind of interesting. Well, what if a guy comes back, you know, incredibly successful infiltrator of North Korean society, if he comes back and before he debriefs, it hits him, maybe this is not such a good idea. <laughs> and that set into motion, you know, a, a whole kind of interesting chain of events. Um, so it's really, there's an initial, you know, what if that then kind of generates all sorts of chains of, of speculation. When you get, when you, when you get the sort of uh, light bulb go on or the epiphanies, do you just sort of hold on to it in your brain and let it marinate? And then you wait until your holiday or whatever, or, are you like jotting it down as soon as you think of it in like a notebook or like, how does that work? Well, sometimes it just, you know, it seizes you, you know, <laughs> like you've been. Got to start been, writing. Yeah. Yeah. You got to start writing. And other times it's just a very faint kind of idea. Um, I mean, the one I'm working on, I, I haven't even started writing it yet. I won't start until the spring, but it, it I'm accumulating lines and ideas but I also know that this is going to be a very heavy lift because I, I basically have to um, I have to learn uh, how to be a dairy farmer. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm fortunate that I have good friends who are dairy farmers and, um, and I can shadow them. I, I've, I've spent a lot of time with them. I know, the va I know the broad outlines of what it takes to run a dairy operation, but I really have to know the, the, the specifics. I need to know the details. So, um, I got to gather that. Then there's, you know, another set of, of things I have to learn about. You know, for the train novel, I had to basically throw myself into the, the mindset of a train fanatic. I interviewed train fans. I went to train conventions. I read every book about trains. I mean, I was obsessed like a train fan for the year, two years that, I, that it took to write that book. Hmm. Well, this is fascinating, John. We've been going on for, this is, we went longer than we normally do, but uh, there was so much to get to. And uh, I, f I wish we could just like sit down for coffee and talk about this more because it's fascinating well i when things <laughs> die down i'd be happy to come out to new zealand <laughs> yeah better than me going to dc uh, <laughs> all right well the book is right across the world the global networking of the far right and the left response again my guest today was john pfeffer thanks for uh, coming on the show dude it was a great pleasure to talk to you.